At retreats like this, we talk a lot about how to practice and the difficulties we encounter in practice. And of course, this is very helpful. It's, it's what most of us need, some orientation to the practice, how to work with the challenges that come up. Carol gave a whole talk on dukkha. I talked about restlessness. Guy talked about working with difficult emotions and states of mind. But this emphasis on the difficulties um, is partly why Buddhism gets a rap as being all about suffering. Um, the, there's a real wisdom in this, of course, our willingness to face suffering, uh, the difficulties of life, and really bring understanding to them is what allows the possibility of transforming them. But if you hear a glib kind of uh, wash on Buddhism, the, 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 especially around the no, Four Noble Truths, you'll often hear the First Noble Truth defined as life is suffering. Um, and I don't know how many times I've heard that or read that, you know, in interviews, radio shows, where someone who doesn't know what they're talking about is talking about Buddhism, and that's what the hell Buddhism, you know, what the Buddhists say is life is suffering. You know, it's all about suffering. I actually found the other day that uh, Stephen Colbert had done, he's doing a little series on religion, so he did one on Buddhism. And he was better than that in his definition, but his definition was life means suffering. And of course, he went on a whole rap about that and made it funny, but... Um, but people don't understand what it is we're doing here. And, you know, in the Stephen Colbert thing, his image of the Buddha was not a Buddha. It was one of these fat kitchen god things that people think are Buddhas. And he's making jokes about the shape of the Buddha, of, of that image, of course. And poor Lama Surya Das, who's a friend and Tibetan teacher, was game enough to go on the show and try to, you know, match wits with Stephen Colbert, which is usually a losing proposition. He, he did okay, but uh, no one really comes out best in, in, that, uh, in that debate. But this emphasis on suffering can lead us to a kind of gloominess of mind. And being on retreat, I know a few people have commented, it's kind of gloomy here, isn't it? You know, as you see people walking around, they look very serious and everything's slowed down. And of course, there's no, what is it, singing, dancing and, and garlands or whatever. We're, we're, we're not getting involved in that, no entertainment. And so it can really seem that a lot of this practice is really about push, turning us back and again and again to what's difficult or what's wrong with experience. Well, I think it's really important to balance that and to uh, actually remember that when the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths, yes, he said what he actually said is there is suffering. Suffering is a, a mark of existence, fact of existence. There's a cause of suffering, but he said very clearly there's an end to suffering and a path leading to the end of suffering. But we often don't talk so much, especially in the early days of a retreat, about those last two. You know, why are we practicing and where is this leading to? But if we don't have a sense of that, how will we find the motivation to continue to practice, to, to, to work with the difficulties that do come up, that are a, a characteristic of experience. We have to have some sense of where this path is leading and my sense of where it's leading, and I, I'm sure yours too or else you wouldn't be here, is to really deepen our capacity for happiness, for calm for, and for contentment. Um, and to bring more understanding, more wisdom, more insight into our both personal experience, but impersonal, 
and possibly to come to an end of suffering. You know, and that can view that in the, the biggest picture, of course, but even in a moment, in any experience, to see that, that there's that possibility of coming to an end of suffering. So as well as all of the teachings and the pointers and the guidance to being with suffering and understanding suffering, finding the uh, cause of suffering, there are many teachings about um, and, and lists about the path to freedom and the beautiful qualities of heart and mind that we need to develop if we really are to deepen in this path of, of practice and actually find an end to suffering. Lists like the seven factors of enlightenment or the five spiritual faculties or the ten paramis or the four brahma-viharas. I want to talk tonight about a list that we don't uh, teach that much about, um, but it's one that actively points to the importance of happiness on the path and how developing these beautiful qualities of mind and heart are essential, that this is the direction the path and the practice moves in. The Buddha was actually known as the happy one, the Sugata. Um, and the many stories and comments in the teachings about his happiness and the happiness of his followers. There were often, people often remarked on the sense of well-being that they observed in the Buddha and his disciples. The kind of happiness the Buddha expressed and that I'm talking about tonight is not the kind of la-di-da happiness of getting what we want or an ice cream cone or even an iPhone 5, which you've missed out on, Lucky, luckily for you. <laughs> you. Couldn't go up and line up at Best Buy for your iPhone 5. It's not that kind of happiness. It's, it's, a, it's a deeper, more reliable uh, kind of happiness that we cultivate here, and that's really more valuable, more important for us. And you probably know that happiness is in right now. You know, there's all this research being done on it, books being written on it. I mean, type in happiness in Amazon.com, and you know, you get hundreds of thousands of responses of books with that in the title. But there's one book that that I've really appreciated. Uh, of all the many that are out there, and James Barras, who at Spirit Rock, he's our happiness guru. If you know James, you know he's also a happy one. Um, it's called How We Choose to Be Happy, The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People. And it's by these two guys, uh, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who live in the Bay Area and often come to Spirit Rock, very aligned with uh, meditation and the practice of meditation. And they give a definition for happiness that I, speak, I think really speaks to us as practitioners and what it is we're looking to cultivate. This is what they say. Our definition of happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. This is the kind of happiness on a relative level that these practices lead us towards. Of course, there's the deeper and ultimate happiness that the Buddha discovered. But on the way to that, 
This is the happiness that really nourishes us, that allows us to continue these practices. And, you know, this, this definition has a lot of words that we can relate to our practice. Centeredness, well-being, contentment, um, knowing our internal self, living in the moment. This is what we're looking to cultivate here. And what we can really begin to see is we can actually train in happiness. And again, all the research is proving that it's possible. This, that book that I mentioned, The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People, it isn't just an accident or even a byproduct of something else, but actually choices that we make over and over again to incline the mind towards happiness. And in the context of our practice, we do that not just for happiness's sake, for its own sake, but really that it's onward leading. As we develop that kind of centeredness, that kind of contentment, well-being, a sense of being engaged in life, we can really um, develop a confidence in the practice and how it's unfolding. And as we open to these teachings, and especially the ones on developing the beautiful qualities of mind, I really find that they provide maps for us. And maps are great. You know, it's how we we all got here when we didn't know how to get here. Um, How we find our way in the world is through these maps. Now there's so many maps available online, etc. But the Buddha gave us lots of maps, and he gave us maps to find the way to this kind of happiness and well-being. And in talking about this tonight, I don't want to make it sound like this is some far distant goal. You know, when we finally get enlightened, we'll be happy, or we get, you know, rid of all these imperfections, we'll be happy. But the possibility of here and now discovering happiness, discovering a sense of well-being through this practice, and its capacity to collect and unify our minds, to actually develop a mind that's trained, that is responsive. That's the kind of mind that allows us to make these choices towards more happiness, more freedom, less suffering. The mind that's not so scattered, not so confused, and perhaps over these weeks now of practice, you've started to feel just a little bit of a sense of that, that the mind isn't as as confused, isn't as lost as it was in the early days of the retreat. And start to see, even in moments, that the mind can actually become an ally, a mind as friend, rather than this kind of very uh, conflicted relationship we have where it's often one of struggle and blame and judgment, but actually the mind is ally and friend through this kind of training. The Buddha said something like, I'm paraphrasing, that the untrained mind can be your worst enemy, but the trained mind is your best friend. This is, again, really what we're doing here, training the mind. And we need to look at what are we training it for? What are we training it to do? The list that I want to speak about tonight is called the five jhanic factors. And these are qualities of mind, they're mental states that lead to the um, experience of jhana and actually constitute the first, especially the first jhana, but their deepening and progress develop into the other jhanas. 
Jhanas is a Pali word that basically means absorption. It's a, it's a meditative experience we can have that really is a marked difference to our normal state of mind and even to normal mindfulness, even quite deep mindfulness. It's a real shifting that can happen through intensive practice where the mind really um, falls into a state that's uh, absorbed, that's centered, that's focused, that's still. Now these factors are normally spoken about in that context and I've often given teachings on them at the concentration retreat that I teach pretty much every year at Spirit Rock where we just focus all of the teachings and practices around concentration. But I've really come to see that then they're not um, only useful for the deepening of concentration, that any meditative practice goes through this kind of unfolding and we can use this map to give us a sense of how the practice is deepening and what direction it might go in. So I thought it might be helpful um, on a long retreat like this where we really do deepen in our practice and there is the time to hear some teachings that we might not normally be exposed to to get a sense of this particular list, this particular um, practices, this particular group of practices that the Buddha spoke about a lot. If you read the suttas, you'll see them mentioned a lot. And so the process that we're doing here, as we sweeten the mind, as we develop these wholesome states, what needs to happen at the same time is a willingness to work with whatever the obstacles are. And this is the kind of suffering that I spoke about at the beginning. Um, this, the willingness to do that work of working with, diminishing, releasing, abandoning, all of the mind states and choices that we make that lead us to suffering. Um, we need to do that at the same time that we're cultivating these beautiful states. And with this particular list, the challenges, the difficult states that um, are worked with are our old friends, the hindrances. Because what's interesting about this list of the jhanic factors is each one is actually a balancing for or an antidote to one of the five hindrances. There's a, a matching there. And so we have this two-pronged approach to our practice that's just actually happening naturally. We don't have to kind of make an agenda about this, but what we're doing is reducing the obstacles, the hindering factors, the states of mind and heart that lead us to suffering, and we're cultivating the supportive factors. And we're actually doing this all the time that we're mindful. Mindfulness has this natural tendency that we don't have to, again, make an agenda out of. But mindfulness's natural um, functioning is to increase wholesome states that it notices and decrease unwholesome states, hindrances that, it's, that it notices. Just by bringing the mindfulness, that natural wisdom of letting go or cultivating is there. But we can also engage a little, be a little more proactive in that process by understanding a little more clearly how it actually works. So this process is going on all the time that we're practicing mindfulness. We're increasing wholesome states and decreasing negative ones. But this work happens more 
quickly, you might say, or more efficiently, effectively, through our willingness to notice hindrances when they're there. And we've talked about this already. Part of that can come from our willingness to recognize if the mind isn't settled, if there isn't some basic degree of ease in our current experience, some form or other of one or more of the hindrances are present. And our willingness to recognize those and actually work with them skillfully continues this cycling of increasing wholesome states and decreasing um, difficult ones. And so all of the practices that we've already shared with you and you already know about, about working skillfully with hindrances, classic uh, practice we gave is that acronym of RAIN, recognition, acceptance, interest or intimacy, uh, non-identification or nature. This is one of the most skillful ways of working with these difficult states of mind, feeling them in the body, recognizing the emotion or naming the hindrance that's present, seeing the thoughts that go with it, and bringing wisdom to it, seeing it as impersonal, seeing that it's conditioned, seeing that it's uh, impermanent, that it will also change. So all of these practices that we've been working with are kind of going to be implied as I go through this, these lists tonight, this kind of wisdom that we can bring to practice. But I'll be offering some other ways of looking at working with the hindrances using this lens of the jhanic factors. So in this list of the five jhanic factors, the first two factors usually talked about together. They're called vitaka and vichara. And Guy mentioned them briefly the other morning. I forget what the context was, but probably saying something like how important they are for our practice. Vitaka is usually translated as aiming or directing attention or initial application. It's that directing of our mindfulness to the chosen object. Vichara, and they go together, vichara is the sustaining of that attention. It's the continued connection with the object. Upandita, when he talks about these two, he talks about aiming and rubbing. It's that sense of staying with this, this really deepening into our connection, our understanding of our mindfulness of a particular object or experience. In the, the traditional translations, they're actually, the two Vitaka Vichara actually defined as, or the literal meaning has uh, something to do with thinking. They're often defined as um, applied or sus- and sustained thought. And this was always a little confusing to me because you know, we're not wanting to encourage a lot of thinking about our meditation process. But I think what it's referring to is using that cognitive capacity of the mind, the mind that knows, that can name, that can recognize, using that functioning of the mind to bring more clarity to our experience. It's a little bit what we're doing when we're using the noting practice, taking that functioning of the mind and using it to help us connect a little more deeply with the experience. 
So vitaka and vichara is this act of connecting with whatever experience it is and sustaining it in this, in a momentary kind of way. And this, the functioning of these two is the foundation of any kind of meditative practice. And if you look at it in a larger context, it's the functioning that has to happen anytime we learn anything. We have to you know, connect with whatever it is that we're studying and sustain for long enough to have the information, the learning actually land. And so it's a, it's a very uh, useful way to understand the mind and, it, and its, its workings. When we talk about aiming and sustaining, this is not, um, it's something that happens momentarily over and over again. It's not that you sit down at the beginning of a meditation, aim your mindfulness at the breath and try to hang on to that for the next 45 minutes or an hour. That is not the way this works and that would just lead to frustration. I don't even think it's possible to do it in that way. But we're always aiming and sustaining with every arising experience that the mindfulness knows. So it's as short as an in-breath and then an out-breath and perhaps even shorter than that, discrete experiences as they arise. Any experience, a sound you know, that, that, that arises at the ear or there's that initial knowing of it and then the sustaining as we keep our attention there for as long as the sound continues. The sound ends, there's a new experience and there's another vitaka and vichara. So we're doing it over and over again. This, and this is really uh, the workhorse of meditation, doing this over and over again. And so if the vitaka is there, if there is that initial connection, the vichara has, the vichara can't arise unless the vitaka is there. The vitaka is there, the vichara has the potential to arise and to continue. And sometimes it's just very brief and we're lost. Other times we can really feel that there's this seamlessness to the practice. And all that needs to happen is the vichara lasts long enough until the next arising, the next in-breath, the next out-breath, the next sound, the next sensation, the next mind state, the next thought that arises. This happens also with a thought. We notice the, you know, wherever we notice the thought, beginning, middle, or end, there's the vitaka and the vichara, to notice the nature of the thought. Sometimes we see, we can experience the actual thinking process in the mind. So it can apply to any experience that we have. But it's the development of these two qualities that supports the deepening of the continuity that we've been emphasizing so much is so important for the deepening of our mindfulness. It's these two factors, vitaka and vichara, that allow the continuity, that brings a kind of seamlessness to practice. And again, I'm not you know, assuming or implying that one is therefore mindful all the time, but you know we go through these, these periods where there is just this sense of continuity, this sense of a flow in the meditation. When there's a break, when there's Vitaka vichara and then a gap. We don't connect again with something else. That's when the hindrances come in. You know, the mind abhors, abhors a vacuum, you know, and so it makes something happen. And the, the tendencies of mind to doubt or restlessness or whatever, that's where it comes in. But if these two uh, keep coming, if we keep developing them, this is when we can really deepen in continuity.
Vitaka is said to be the antidote to sloth and torpor, or when it really gets bad, toth and slorpa. You know, that's when you can't even get the words out. You know, it's all of that experience that I'm sure you're all familiar with of sleepiness and dullness and fogginess and spaciness. Vitaka brings that zing of energy. It's like that clarity of knowing that recognizes the experience, whatever it is, can break through that kind of fogginess that is sloth and torpor. In talking about sloth and torpor, you know, sometimes some teachers give a whole talk on, on sloth and torpor, and it's really interesting to see all the layers and textures of how it manifests, but to just say a few words about it, that there are different kinds of sleepiness. You know, there's the garden variety of sleepiness that all of us had the first few days of the retreat, or perhaps even longer, just getting adjusted to the schedule, to being here. And then there's a different kind of sleepiness that happens uh, just through our biorhythms, through the course of a day or you know, days of practice. But we can get more interested in this third kind of sleepiness that we call sinking mind. And sinking mind is an experience that happens when the concentration, the steadiness is actually deepening, but there's not quite enough energy, not quite enough zing in the vitaka to bring wakefulness. So it's just an imbalance in the concentration or the calming factors and the energizing factors. And sinking mind we can experience when we feel kind of mindful. You know, Joseph talked about sort of mindful. You know, if someone asked, we'd say, yes, we're mindful, we're with the breath. But all of a sudden, it's like someone turned the lights out. You know, you just, the energy drops. You often find yourself not, you know, jerking forward. And it's like you wake up and you realize you've really been in a kind of fog. When you notice that happening, um, sometimes just the little jerk that happens out of that is enough energy to break through the trance that was happening. But vitaka is what will actually support working with the sleepiness. Just get bringing more clarity to noticing arisings, noticing the beginnings of things can actually bring more energy. And what we can see is it has what I see anyways, Vitaka, when it's clearly seen, has a little bit of positive reinforcement. It's like there is this little bit of energy in the connecting with experience. And as we understand this process, it actually feels more pleasant to have that energy than to get lost in the fog of the sloth and torpor. And we kind of see the newness in experience. Vitaka is all about it's new in this moment. It's fresh. It's, it's never been repeated, even though you might be thinking it's just another breath. Vitaka allows us to kind of connect with it, with this sense of clarity. So it really does bring a kind of, it is an energizing kind of factor. Vichara, on the other hand, the sustaining of awareness is the antidote to doubt. And I think this is also interesting because um, doubt is in some ways the most difficult of the hindrances. Actually, the most difficult hindrance is the one you're experiencing right now, right, usually. But if you sort of step back a bit, doubt is really challenging because it just puts everything up for, for, for discussion, for debate, for question, for judging and comparing. You know, 
why am I here? What am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing? If I'm doing it, am I doing it right? You know, everyone else seems to know what they're doing and I don't. Or, you know, no one knows what they're doing, not even the teachers. And we can just go in this spin of, of questioning and challenging. And of course, some degree of doubt, some skillful doubt or inquiring kind of doubt is helpful. But this kind of doubt really keeps us spinning around um, and not landing in experience. Vichara is that experience of actually connecting with what's happening and knowing it. So Vitaka is that momentary, here is something. Vichara allows us to know what it is, allows us to connect, allows us to deepen. And so we can start to trust our experience as we settle the mind and actually know what's happening. Know a breath, know a sound and know its nature, know a thought and know its nature. This is actually what deepens our faith in our capacity to do this practice, is this sense of steadiness. Doubt keeps us superficial on the surface. Vichara allows us to connect and keep um, opening to experience. I actually had a, a, a very exaggerated uh, experience that is in this area of it, uh, vichara and doubt. Um, a number of years ago, Guy and I were going to fly to Australia to visit my family. I, I go regularly and he comes every now and then. And the airline that we were going on offered a free layover in Fiji where we'd never been before. And so it seemed like a nice idea to take a few days there. But we both had the idea that Fiji might be a good and a cheap place to learn how to scuba dive. Now, in retrospect, perhaps that wasn't wisdom actually working. You know, it's like when you see the ads in the paper, cut price LASIK surgery. You know, we do the cheapest in town. And you're like, yeah, right. What I want is the cheapest person to direct laser beams into my eye. You know, the one that's doing it cut price. But, you know, we were on a limited budget, and so we thought this was a good idea. So we flew, you know, we stopped over in Fiji, and then we, to get to this place where we'd booked into, we had to take a little plane, and then from the plane there were no roads on this island, or certainly not over the island, so we had to get a little boat, and we landed in this tiny little resort. Um, you know, it was just thatched roof, a group of little thatched roofed house, houses on a, a very pretty little beach and we started to learn to scuba dive there. A few things we didn't factor in. One, you know, the cheapness perhaps isn't the best guiding uh, decision-making point. But two, it was January, which is a cyclone season in Fiji. <laughs> and this little resort did not have a swimming pool to learn how to scuba dive in. You had to do it out in the ocean, the open ocean. And instead of, you know, calm Pacific Ocean, it was really getting quite surgy already, even though the hurricanes, uh, cyclones were, weren't approaching. They actually did approach, and that's another whole story, literally, literally blew the roof off this whole place while we were there. But uh, these early days, it was just surges and a little brisk breeze. But to learn how to scuba dive, you know, they show you all the equipment, and it's a dangerous thing. You know, you're going underwater and going quite deep. So there's a lot of equipment, a lot of things to learn. 
And then you go out and you actually have to do it. And once you're underwater, you know, as they say, they, no one can hear you scream underwater because you've got this big thing in your mouth and there's all of these dials and buttons on the, you know, things you have to look at and you're wearing weights to help you sink and uh, a flotation vest to help you float. And it's like meditation. You have to learn how to balance those two. But off we go, trudging in and our dive instructor was Ezra. He was this big Fijian guy. And even though the equipment was, you could tell it, it had been through its paces. It wasn't, you know, brand new and sparkling. But I really trusted Ezra. He was a great guy. And, uh, you know, we walk in. You have to, you know, it's a shore dive. You just walk in and it's getting deeper. And finally you're floating. And the ocean, as it does, gets deeper and deeper. And the idea is we would just do a very gradual descent and do our first scuba dive. So off we go, and that's happening, and Ezra is first, and Guy is second, and I'm following along, and it's getting deeper and deeper, and we're going down, but at some point, I'm not going down anymore, you know, and that's when you have to start balancing the weights and the uh, buoyancy, and in scuba diving, there's a little tube, it's got two buttons on it, one increases the air, and one decreases the air, so I'm like, okay, I need to decrease the air, start pressing a button, and I'm not going down. So what do you do? You press it again, right? You press it harder. You press it more. Well, they're going deeper and deeper, and I'm not getting deeper. So my next thing, press the other button, right? If the first one isn't working, well, of course, in hindsight, that's the one that increases the air in the vest. It's coming from your ox oxygen tanks. So they're getting deeper, and I'm... <laughs> going up and up and up. And that's the interesting thing about scuba diving. You know, it's three-dimensional, and I'm trying to keep up. I'm right now on the surface, and they're going. And after some time, and I have to say it was some time, they noticed that I wasn't there. Because I'm kind of... And I could see, you know, guys looking around. He doesn't have a clue. But Ezra, you know, finally realizes, oh, look up. And they, you know, there I am floating on the, on, the, on the surface. And so he has to come all the way up. And the, the, the technique that I had missed that he had told us was when you press the button, you have to hold it above the tank or above your head for the air to release. And that's what I wasn't doing. And this is what happens. You know, he had told us that, but my mind just, you know, was busy with all of a thousand things and didn't pay attention. Vichara is what allows us to stay attentive to stay present and get the information that we need to get to actually navigate, you know, whether it's scuba diving or navigating our own minds. And I really saw that without that information, you know, I was stuck there on the surface. It didn't allow me to deepen. That the, and the doubt, you know, pressing, and that's my also natural tendency. If one button doesn't work, try the other one. <laughs> Who needs to read the instructions, right? You just press all the buttons until something does something. Um, I personally know that this is a quality that I need to develop. It's just that, it's not any nodding happening over here, is it? <laughs> Staying steady. You know, it allows us to validate our experience and know for ourselves, start to trust for ourselves instead of, you know, flailing around and staying on the surface. So these two qualities, Vitaka and Vichara, are enormously helpful for us in our practice. And really, you know, it's such a simple kind of concept, aiming and sustaining. 
But for me, I found it very valuable. It's like, oh, right, that's what I'm doing. And can I stay with this, whatever this experience is, just that little bit longer? Can I know it perhaps a little more deeply, a little more clearly? So these are the workhorses of our meditation. As we develop this capacity over and over again, and I'm talking you know, not just seconds or moments, but days and weeks, um, it really allows this sense of continuity that I spoke about and develops the third of these factors, jhanic factors, and that's the factor of piti. It's also one of the seven factors of awakening and serves a similar function, arises out of a similar experience. Here it's arising out of vitaka and vichara, aiming and sustaining. Piti is usually translated as rapture or joy. And it's interesting to see that it arises naturally out of the mind that stays connected. You know, it's not a kind of excitable experience that happens just randomly, but through this process of sustaining the meditation in this continuous way. And what happens with pity is the mind gets absorbed and fascinated with its chosen object, or even changing objects. It doesn't have to be one object. Um, It becomes effortless to stay connected. And when we talk about this connection, there are two basic kinds of um, deepening of meditation. One is where we do take one object, perhaps the breath or metta or there's many other objects, and that develops in deep, that samatha practice, tranquility practice, deepening into um, samadhi and perhaps into jhana. But in this kind of practice, what we're doing is kanika samadhi. This is moment-to-moment mindfulness, or sorry, moment-to-moment concentration. Even though the objects are changing, it's the continuity, it's the vitaka and vichara and the, the continuous nature that we develop that allows a deepening of the concentration that brings about this sense of absorption, of pity. Um, and it's like a magnetic attraction. You know, there's not, not so much a sense of having to keep the mind, corral the mind. I talked about sheepdog mind the other day. That's not necessary once this starts to develop. Joseph talks about practice in this way. He says, at the beginning, it's like a mindfulness is a ball on top of an upside-down bowl, and it just easily rolls off, you know, just the slightest. It's really hard to get it to stay. After a while, it's, it's like a level field, and it'll move around, but you have to kind of push it to, to get it to move and ultimately becomes upside down bowl or you. And the mindfulness just rests. It can move a little around in there, but it takes you know, some pushing to get it to move. It just rests really easily. So this is what can start to happen as the mindfulness becomes steadier. Now rapture is a mental factor. These are all mental factors, but rapture particularly can be experienced in the body. It can, be, um, it can be showering kinds of rapture, momentary rapture, a kind of goosebumps. Um, a common experience of rapture is a, a lifting, a, a lightening. Rapture can also be felt as a real heaviness or solidity. All kinds of pushing or pulling experiences can be a manifestation of rapture, lights and things like this, pulsing. A lot of things can be this deepening uh, of the concentration leading to, to pity. 
as soon as we start talking about this, I, most often people's eyes light up and it's like, oh, that's what I should be having in meditation, or I want more of that. You know, and so it's not, this is not something that we can or even should go and try and get. It's a natural result, and sometimes it's very subtle, and sometimes actually rapture is unpleasant. The, the, the movements or the pressures or the experience can, can be very um, uh, aggravating to the mind. It can actually be tiring at times. So again, not to, you know, we want more pity in our experience. Sometimes pity arises and it has these characteristics. Sometimes it's blissful, but sometimes it's not. But we're not doing it just to get the experience of pity. This is a, a part of the progression that I'm... Uh, talking about, and as I said, it's also in the seven factors of awakening. But pity, rapture, when it comes, counterbalances aversion, counterbalances that sense of uh, not wanting, because we're delighting in the object. The mind is just really happy to be paying attention to whatever it's paying attention to. So any form of aversion, judging, ill will, um, irritation, aversion to ourselves, to our body, to sounds, whatever, rapture is uh, the beautiful antidote to that. It's actually when, when the mind is really absorbed in its object, it's impossible for those mind states to come in. And you might remember... Um, Joseph's story about being at a really terrible retreat where the conditions were difficult and complaining to Upandita, and Upandita's only advice, thank you, was uh, just be more mindful, which didn't seem like it would help very much, but he was. He tried that and he became more mindful and found that aversion just didn't have a way And if he was really with his direct experience. So this is what can happen with rapture. There's just no room for the hindrances. Um, to come in. So to really see this direction of practice we, we, as we develop the continuity, the mind as it gets more collected, gets more unified, really brings with it this reduction in suffering. And again, these are factors that come and go. It's not like we land in this and everything's great from now on. But it has this potential to really reduce the tendency of the mind to move into aversion and not wanting. Now, the pity is usually quite a um, strong experience. It can have its subtlety, but it, you know, it, it, it's, it has a strength to it. It's interesting that the next factor that develops in this particular list, the fourth uh, factor, is that of sukha. Sukha. Sukha is usually translated as happiness or pleasure. It's the opposite of dukkha. It's sukha. And I love it that, you know, that's a Pali word, but you can see its connection to sweetness, to sucrose. Um, It has that, sukha has that feeling or flavor. This sweetness, Steve Armstrong defines it as happy contentment of mind and body. It has a softness to it. It's a more subtle experience than rapture. Now, pity and sukha have a, a strong connection. Some teachers even talk about pity sukha, and they don't really distinguish the two of them. 
But I think it's really helpful to understand this progression, this natural progression, from the absorption that comes with the rapture, this kind of intensity. The natural progression is to this subtler experience of sukha, of sweetness. Sukha comes with a kind of um, pleasantness. Uh, Often we smile when we have, especially our first experiences of sukha as a meditative experience, to just feel that potential for this kind of happiness in this mind and body, just as it is. So the mind has become absorbed, the vitaka and vichara have provided the foundation, the mind has become happily absorbed in its object, and so this feeling of absorption has arisen. But then what arises is this really sweet, kind of subtle experience of sukha, of contentment, of ease. There's a softness to it. And again, you might have already had this just in moments where there's no tug or anything. Because what sukha balances is the hindrance of restlessness and worry. As we find this kind of pleasure and start to trust that in our present moment experience, the mind isn't so agitated. It's not so caught in the push or pull of experience, going to the past and worrying about that, regrets and remorse, future and planning and agitation. I did that whole talk about restlessness and the agitation that comes from it and this questioning that we're in so often of, am I okay? Was I okay? Will I be okay? The experience of sukha is a direct experience of some kind of fundamental okayness that we can begin to trust. This contentment, this experience where the mind isn't in the push and pull of wanting, not wanting, past and future, but is actually just content with things as they are. This is the beautiful power of sukha. And in the progression of the factors, sukha, happiness, leads to the last factor, which is ekagata. Ek means one in Pali, in Sanskrit, in Hindi. Ekagata is usually translated as one-pointedness or non-distraction. And again, there's this movement that's happening. It's often also used as as synonymous with concentration And it has a flavor of equanimity. There's a balance of mind that gets developed. There's a calmness, even a coolness. And it can be quite noticeable after the sweetness of the sukha, this coolness of ekagata. But it is a a deepening. And we really, again, this is important to recognize, a deepening, a refining of the sukha. We're not looking for happiness. We're abiding in this sense of well-being and stability of mind. And ekagata is the antidote to greed, to wanting, because the mind is really at rest or at peace. It's in balance. It's not needing to go out there and get or to push away. And there's some feeling of completeness in the present moment in this experience, just as it is. And for many of us, this is 
a really unusual experience, you know, to not be wanting something, something better, something different, something improved, but just some kind of okayness, some kind of steadiness of mind in the simplicity of experience, whatever you might be doing, formally sitting in the hall or just moving around the retreat center. And the practice begins to show us that this type of well-being is possible even in these very simple conditions, even with the amount of renunciation that, is go- that we are experiencing here, that this is possible. So this is the balancing factor for greed. So how does this all work? How do these all come together? It's not as though, you know, we have a moment of restlessness. We just say, oh, more sukha. You know, that's what I need. So let's just bring that up. It doesn't work that way. There's this, you know, this process that we're in that really has to develop them. Um, But it begins by working skillfully with the hindrances. Just as we've been talking about, the more we're willing to do that, to name them, to to disidentify with them, to bring wisdom in, to bring skillfulness in our relationship, to really not give energy, to not believe the story that the hindrances are telling us, and to actively cultivate and nurture the wholesome states of mind, whatever they are, whenever we experience them. And we do that in the same way by naming them, by recognizing them, by actually feeling them in the mind and body, we begin to inhabit or integrate these beautiful qualities of mind and heart. So I'm often encouraging people in the interviews, did you notice that? Did you name that? Peace or calm or ease or acceptance or letting go. These are actual felt experiences. And that's what gives us the feedback that we're on the right track, that we're having, that the experiences developing as it should. And again, you know, in talking about it tonight, not to hold anything out, this is what should be happening, or, you know, if you're not having this, the meditation isn't working. This is a very gradual process. And all of us weave in and out of little tastes or deeper experiences of it throughout the retreat. You know, it's not... Even though the jhanic factors are, are somewhat sequential, they don't go in lockstep. You know, we can have moments of sukha or a moment of clarity of ekagata, that one-pointed coolness of experience. You know, any time in our process, but they all develop out of the vitaka and vichara, that willingness to just again and again aim and sustain, connect. And, and develop our mindfulness, the, the meditation. These two are the only ones that we have any real control over. The others develop out of. We can nurture them by noticing them, inclining the mind, understanding the territory, recognizing them when they arise. But vitaka and vichara are the, is, are the cornerstones of our practice, um, the, the foundation, and we need to do that over and over, you know, and just be willing. The patience that I spoke about this morning, this is just this willingness to do them over and over again. But what the way this practice develops is then we have whatever moments of absorption, even if it's just a few breaths or a few moments where there's that sense of just settling in, 
just being with, without the hindrances so much having a, 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 an impact. And so this sense of absorption can develop, whatever degree of joy or bliss, strong experiences in the body and mind can develop. But what naturally happens, as, as that brings its own steadiness, you know, the absorption of that, the mind gets trained, it gets connected. The natural development is this refinement into the sukha. And I think this is the thing that I wanted to really point out, is this natural arc that you'll find in so many of the Buddhist lists, where they begin with the foundational factors that often require some effort. We need to bring intention into them. You know, the, the, the um, seven factors of enlightenment certainly act that way. Um, a lot of the lists act that way. So we, 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 do, we need to bring that clarity of intention into the, the, the practice. And then they often arc in some kind of energizing factors that really give us motivation to keep going. But then they all all move into the direction of more subtlety, of more refinement, of more simplicity, of more coolness even. And I just think that's a beautiful map or model to hold. We often think what we're going for are peak experiences. We want the drama and the excitement. But all of these lists have this kind of trajectory to more refinement, more letting go, more calmness, more ease, more contentment more well-being, because it's from that place that the mind can really open to insight. This, this foundation of well-being, of contentment, of equanimity and ease, that's when the mind really can deepen and discover the truth that the Buddha talked about, nature of reality, but also the possibility of a real and true deep and lasting happiness. So just to have a sense of this map, not to again go after it with striving, but doing the, being willing to do this important work, connecting and sustaining gently, persistently, with patience. So I want to finish with some words from the Dhammapada, uh, the verses, the poems of the Buddha, and this one is about happiness and its importance. Ah, so happily we live without hate among those who, with hate. Among people who hate, we live without hate. Ah, so happily we live without misery among those in misery. Among people in misery, we live without misery. Ah, so happily we live without ambition among those with ambition. Among people who are ambitious, we live without ambition. Ah, so happily we live, we who have no attachment. We shall feast on joy as do the radiant gods. So let's just take a moment to let the words settle.
Ah, so happily we live, we who have no attachment. We shall feast on joy as do the radiant gods. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.